0: Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. Welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. My name is Eric Christensen, and this is... Drumroll. You're supposed to introduce yourself. Oh. (laughs) This is Chris on. That's my uh, totally unrehearsed uh, new introduction, which we won't do again, because clearly that caught you off guard. I just thought it would add like a jolt of, uh, just uh, just, if we frighten each other a little bit, everyone will stay (laughs) awake on like a Saturday afternoon. That's my thinking. Uh, How's it going today?
1: Yeah, it's going well. End of term, marking. Uh, End of term doing the final grading and so on. It's that time of the year. The one thing that we always dread. Yeah, I don't, I did meet a. Uh, I I
0: did have a colleague who said that their favorite thing was, was marking, but I haven't talked to them in a long time. So maybe, maybe they didn't survive because they had that attitude or something. I don't know, but they said that was their favorite. They love going through the projects. I suppose it depends on what you're marking.
1: I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I, that's uh, That's the only thing that I think is just, uh, it it becomes um, kind of a a bit of a chore. But I do like seeing the projects for sure, depending on the projects.
0: I would imagine it gets easier. I've done very little marking. Every so often I do. But I would imagine it gets easier or more interesting as the years increase to upper level.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I think the quality of work uh, just... Especially when you have people who are in doing, you know, let's say uh, professional development or uh, graduate studies, for sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I think we should probably kick this off with our EdTech office hours. So this is a uh, kind of a, I guess, a rebrand, so to speak, of this segment of this podcast. I have um, we get questions from people, but not always. So it's kind of a, a combination now of questions that we get from colleagues and people who've listened. Uh, most of the people we know, occasionally people who uh, send information in, as well as, uh, you know, some sort of tool that we're talking about. So we kind of are capstoning our bookending, capstoning, capstoning is the wrong analogy, um, bookending the podcast with with some tools. So I've gotten—I don't know about you, Chris—but I get a lot of questions about uh, tools in general, um, especially like open resource tools or uh, open source tools for doing things. Partly because you know, nobody wants to pay for the tool that they need to accomplish something, because there's often not funding for it. But also, sometimes a, an open source tool is a little bit more sustainable because you don't have to pay for it. It's not like a recurring cost. So, I've gotten a lot of questions over the years um, about open educational resource tools or open source tools for developing content so as open educational resources have become more popular um you know i've i've been kind of compiling these i used to just bookmark them um but i found a or i shouldn't say it was a a website was shown to me uh called innovations in scholarly communication so we'll put a link uh, in the show notes to this i thought this was interesting um and you know, this is done through the University of Utrecht. and um, basically, it's a website about innovations in scholarly communication. But one of the one of the things that they link to from the site is this big uh, Google spreadsheet. So it's a Google Doc that I think is editable. So there's a lot of trust here given to the public, and it's just a big, huge monster list of Different types of OER tools. So they could be databases for finding information. So like a like a database. So like uh, one of the examples in here is Open Gray. That's a database for finding gray literature. So like government reports, uh, you know, NGO reports, statistics, you know, masters dissertations clinical trials that kind of stuff are considered gray literature because they don't go through a peer-reviewed academic publisher like a like a journal or something but they also have all of these really interesting um tools for creating content you have all your you know wiki tools kind of open source office alternatives just kind of the ultimate list and the tools are kind of described so by like tags so there's like some comma separated values like annotation tools data extraction tools lab experiment lab notebooks so like online lab notebook taking tools all sorts of stuff I think it would be uh you know a bit of work to go through this to find the tools that are most interesting to you but nevertheless it's probably the most comprehensive uh list that I've seen
1: oh for sure it's um... A little bit overwhelming when you showed it to me, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's probably one of the biggest repositories I've uh, ever seen. Yeah, so I wish there was, you know, the, I mean,
0: if you know how to control F or command F, if you're using a Mac on your keyboard, you could certainly do this, uh, or you can also sort, you could make a copy of the spreadsheet, that's probably the best thing to do, download it, and then you can sort it. By you know, data web analysis tools, text analysis tools, they have all this stuff, research, creation, all of these things. Um, but one of the tools related to this that I thought was really interesting uh, that's linked in this list and is also part of a course I'm taking. So there's a bit of a backstory here. So I just finished a course, and I'm, I guess we can link to this in the show notes through the University of British Columbia. They have a free, open educational resources course on uh, open educational resources. So I think as you described it, it's super meta, uh, some sort of infinite recursive loop. It was really interesting, um, pretty straightforward course. It's like a few hours a week. Uh, I'd recommend it to anyone interested in learning about what open education is. They kind of walk you through open pedagogy, but they, they have these activities you are supposed to do to complete the course. And one of them, was um, looking at these kinds of research tools. And one of the tools that uh, you could do as one of the activities, which again is on this big list, is called Tabula. So this is a super cool tool, basically what it is. It's an app, uh, it works for Windows Mac. So it's somewhat cross-platform. I believe there's also a Linux version. And it doesn't open like a traditional tool, like a traditional application, you kind of have to use like, um, almost like a locally hosted address. Like if you did 168.192, like it's a local host kind of a thing. So it's almost like a locally hosted web server. But what's really cool is that you open it in a browser. So it's a browser app, but it's locally installed on your computer. And what you can do is you can import um, PDF documents into the tool. And there's a selector button, kind of like a cropping tool that you would have in a photo editor. And what you can do is that if you come across a PDF, let's say that you want to, um, you know, edit some data or do some analysis uh, from data that's represented in a PDF. So it's, it's or an image, so it's not editable. You can't actually see it or you can't actually, you know, copy it like you would with a Word document. What you can do is you can kind of highlight the table and it uses some sort of optical character recognition or something. And it will rebuild the table as an editable table so you can take non-editable data in a non-editable pdf select it and then make it editable now i say it worked really well like i would say like 60 percent of the time which doesn't sound great but given how complicated some of the tables are it was actually really impressive and with other ones It was actually, it didn't really matter. It was close enough. It's easy to add a column or a row to a table and then just copy and paste and shift things around. So it saved me a lot of time. Um, If you find that there's kind of, especially old research articles that are using PDFs, but they're really like almost images of print articles that may be useful. Um, Anyways, just a really, really cool uh, tool. And and then the website for it, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, I think it's used by all sorts of uh, journalistic organizations um, like ProPublica. It says the Times of London, foreign policy. They use this to kind of extract data out of articles. So it would be a useful thing for researchers or students or educators, especially if you're trying to pull something out and
1: put it in your your paper. Oh, absolutely. Because otherwise you'd basically have to go and transcribe it again.
0: Yeah. and, And, you know, that's, it's, it's a, I like things like this because some tools are, yeah, I mean, you build a you build a web app or you build something and, you know, you never know what the audience is, but this is something, especially with digitized materials that are older, uh, something that I've run into more and more. It's like, I don't want to just insert an image. I want to, you know, credit the data table. So I'm not monkeying with their results, but maybe I want to include it in a blog post or include it in a paper and I want to credit it, but I want to format it in such a way that it's not like a fuzzy PDF image. and I think this solves a real uh, problem and probably maybe doesn't work quite as well as some, I've seen some more advanced paid tools for this, but I don't know, I tested it on like a half a dozen articles. I was like, this is way better than uh, typing everything out again and then the risk of making a mistake. So I thought it was pretty awesome. It's JavaScript based, so it's pretty straightforward. Sounds good. Um, we do have a news section. That's pretty much what today is news, uh, even though the pickings are slim. Mm. And so, um, maybe, did you want me to, uh, maybe I'll kick off. We only have one tech news article and then the rest is, uh, kind of education based. So there was an interesting uh, article from, uh, actually, you know, it's DKB, but I never actually looked up what the full person's page was called. Is it somebody's name? I have to look this up now so I can properly. Might be. DKB is a blog, independent search, uh, research on search and organizational information, DKB.io. But what does DKB stand for? That's what I forgot. Not sure. This is like the worst citation job I've ever done. Uh, any student who's ever had me in their class is just like howling and laughter right now because I'm always talking about people to cite their sources. Anyway, it's called DKB.io. I've never come across the the, the site before, but uh, there was a really interesting blog post. I actually found this on Hacker News. That's why I don't know. Um, and it, it basically, the site relates to search and search engines, which we've talked about on this podcast before. Uh, but the the blog post is called The Next Google. And basically, I'll, I'll just read the, the introduction because I thought it was quite well done. It's very blunt. And this was published on April 5th, so not that long ago. And it says DuckDuckGo and Bing are not true alternatives. They're just worse versions of Google, which I think you and I thought that was uh, pretty funny, actually, I, and somewhat I, true. For sure. The Next Google can't just be an uh, input box that spits out links. We need new thinking to create something much better than what came before. In the last few years, different groups of people came to the same conclusion and started working on the next generation of search engines. For this new generation, privacy is necessary and invasive ads are not an option, but that's where their commonalities end. Beyond that, they've all taken uh, an idea of search engine in very different directions. And basically the blog post highlights uh, a variety of pretty I guess, not well-known search engine alternatives, but is really quite interesting. So, and I was playing with some of them as a result. So one of them was Kagi, or Kagi, K-A-G-I, called the customization engine. Uh, This one's really interesting. It's super privacy-focused. You can change the visual customization. So it changes the CSS and the layout. So great for accessibility, Um, but also just a ton of um kind of customizational things so you can decide if you want the wikipedia widget kind of like the information box on google does do you want that to show up if there's a hit result yes or no or do you just want the list of searches uh instant answers like you know if you type in like what is the conversion of canadian to us dollars you know do you want that kind of thing on or off so you have the ability to turn on or off all of these kind of add-ons that have been baked into search that are kind of there whether we need them or not Uh, which i like Um, it talks about uh, lenses so it allows you to create all these uh, web filters in this kaji search which is really cool so um, do you want pdf files to show up in your search file Uh, yes or no Uh, do you want EDU websites, So dot edu is American academic sites to show up. So there's a kind of an education angle. So what the what types of domain uh, searches do you want to be uh, show up. So if you really didn't like like dot biz or something like that, you could be like, I don't want to see dot biz on my search results. Uh, you know, do you want to see commercial results. Uh, Or do you want to highlight non-commercial results? So there's a lot of really interesting things in here. And that would, you know, the non-commercial would be like, you'd filter out like maybe Amazon links or other things that get picked up. Uh, They go through, this blog post does discuss other searches. So there's like Neva and they call it the everything search engine. And uh, why should search, uh, you know, why should search engines only index the web? So this search engine kind of indexes uh, just all sorts of other things. Uh, I think maybe you can, I think you can connect your accounts uh, and other things that you use to it, uh, and then it'll kind of pull in things like email and stuff like that. So all of these really interesting novel uh, search engines, I'm not going to go through them all. Again, we'll put the link uh, into the show notes, but I guess I put it in here because I think we have, uh, there's a problem with search. I think search used to be really exciting. And because it's been monetized, you know, prop companies like Google and make this or, or Bing or DuckDuckGo to an extent, they have to make money or at least uh, make enough money for their not-for-profit status so they don't go under. I think DuckDuckGo is probably a not-for-profit. I I'm not know for sure, though. And so I think the article just highlights that the next generation of search has to include a lot more customization. Um, I've heard interesting proposals in some of the tech podcasts that I've listened to discuss how... You know maybe a really customizable search that you pay for that's very very good that doesn't have any ads would be a really great business model um, for at least a segment of the market i, I ha- it's hard for me to believe that google search is ever going to be supplanted at this point by uh some custom engine but i don't know what, what do you what is your take on this is this just is this just an optimistic
1: wish list yeah, and i mean neva it is actually created by a former google uh you know people that are uh in charge of the search engine and so uh they are going that subscription route so it is a paid um, yeah. application right so i think we might have even talked about it in the past but you know it's uh, it's interesting i mean i've even um this past semester i i taught um, a course on new venture marketing uh, for the mbas and it was interesting the students they actually mentioned this that uh you know with google ads they purposely avoid them because they don't want to go and generate revenue for google and and uh, they rather avoid those and scroll down and actually click on uh, the thing that you're looking for and um, you know so I, I thought that was kind of interesting uh, that they're actually uh, now cognizant of that and I, I wonder how much of that actually translates into um you know, uh, in terms of that consciousness for people. I mean, I personally, I usually avoid them myself. And so, uh, you know, I I think it's the, as you mentioned, um, Eric, like it's tough when you have a huge company like Google that is basically they have a monopoly over this situation, right? But that being said, there is opportunity now. And, And this is why a lot of these large tech companies what they'll do is, um, you know, they'll probably buy up those little smaller competitors. The The startups are more nimble. They're able to go and um, actually develop something. Uh, but then hopefully somebody like Google might, uh, you know, not come around and just, you know, stifle the competition. Although it's been said that Apple is working on a search engine as well, right? So
0: yeah, have been talking
1: I, about it for a while. I, I don't know. But I mean, that that was a rumor before Siri
0: launched. And um, I always thought that maybe it was just a misunderstanding of the rumor whereby they were really working on a voice search, but perhaps I'm, I'm wrong.
1: I mean, really after the, the uh, other big, it's kind of interesting, I don't uh, most people probably wouldn't consider Amazon as uh, being a, a competitor to search, but, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, a lot of people do go to Amazon now to look for goods. Right. So it's, uh, it's interesting, like how people are using it, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's gotten to a point where, um, uh, and again, like, that's why I thought this blog post that you shared, like when I read the first line, I just started laughing because, uh, I mean, I've used DuckDuckGo before and yeah, I mean, it's like 90% of the way there, but it's not as good as Google, but for the most part, really, it's I uh, I don't think it's uh, a big deal. You could use it. And if you really do care about privacy, um, I think most people it's, uh, again, it's one of those things where it, uh, you're probably not willing to pay for it. And then what is that cost for it that you're willing to, you know, what is the cost of privacy?
0: Yeah. I've never tried to steer people away from using Google. That was never my intent. I guess my interest in these, the reason I was thinking about it from an education perspective is that, you know, search algorithms have a bias. They have, you know, the people who work at the company rank them a certain way. And you and I have talked about this before where you know, cultural biases. If your company is one culture or another, it could be anything they are gonna, you're gonna, you know, we bring biases into the code and things like that. So I don't think that you can necessarily get rid of biases. Every company has a corporate bias. I'm not, and I'm not saying that you have to rid, try to rid out every bias. I feel like that's impossible, but if just kind of like we've trained people or we have a long history of training people in education to try to look at a variety of different perspectives uh, for a given argument, or different arguments to a topic. I think an, a natural extension of that would be to try to get people to replicate their web searches across a few engines. Now, nobody's looking at page five of the results, because in my experience, even using Google, they trail off really quick in terms of relevance. But they if you use you know, Kaji and Go, Go and Google and Bing, you maybe would get things ranked to the top that you wouldn't see in the first couple, I would say the first couple of pages to go through is well worth it. So I guess that's kind of what uh, is interesting to me. You can't train people to get rid of their biases. The companies are always going to have some sort of angle, especially if they're making money.
1: So, you know, telling people to consult more than one is a good practice and it's it's just tough when there isn't that much for competition
0: (laughs) that's true uh, well then you just have to you know mandate it i mean i think that would be an interesting thing from a from a course perspective though like yeah i mean a, a course where people have to they have to try an alternative like that's part of it yeah it's it's interesting.
1: Well, isn't that just where we tell students to search the research databases that we have available through our library?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think students know to do that, but it's interesting, that's an interesting thing though. So when I was in university, um, there was research databases. It was mostly digital journals, but there wasn't really a unified, like a main search on, on library homepages yet. Yeah, It's actually only since then that we've imp- implemented that. And've we've, we've almost googleized to a large extent, university library searches, which is kind of in some ways is good, but in some ways is kind of the opposite direction, right? Because you're now providing a disincentive for people to try to search that in a different database. They're just relying on nah the library searches. We call those discovery layers in the library world. They, ch- they try to unite everything, but again it, the discovery layer that the university purchases that ties together all the databases that they subscribe to that's a product that ties that they pay for that ties together all of their other services that has a bias so it's going to rank things differently than if you search ebsco or proquest right so um, it's harder and harder to get people to do this stuff i guess if you find your results on what you're looking for right away that's great but where i see this fall apart is Oh, I tried. I tried the main search. I didn't find anything. So nothing's ever been written on the topic. It's impossible. I, I get that a lot. I get that a lot. Like, oh, like nothing's ever been written on the, you know, on the the abortion debate. I couldn't find anything. I was like, really? That's, that seems impossible. That would be incredible that nothing's been written on this. Uh, did you try a legal scholar database? Um, but more and more, oh, wow, we have other databases. I thought it was just like the MRU library database or the University of Calgary singular database. I'm like, no, 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 no. And so this is like a new thing that we have to educate people with. Yeah, no, for sure. Anyways, that's my, uh, our next, uh, my next thing. So you have an article that we could probably move into our, our education slash ed tech news. I've kind of divided this up today. So you have an article, uh, to, to kick us off
1: yeah for sure so this was from uh, entrepreneur.com and uh, they basically just outlined uh, the title is 5 edtech trends that will change learning between now and 2030 And um, I I just, uh, again, it's always kind of tough to find things on EdTech, but uh, I mean, uh, it was kind of nice to have a bit of a list. I mean, some people may or may not agree with some of these uh, trends that they've identified, but I'll just go through them quickly. Uh, The first is creating interaction between students and professors is crucial. Uh, The second is employment is a key result of education. (laughs) this is where the debate could come up (laughs) this sounds like
0: some sort of are you some capitalist shill chris trying to (laughs) enslave the education subordinate it to the wills of the market is that what you're trying to say i'm just i'm only joking i have heard this argument uh that we shouldn't measure uh employment as an outcome for education I, i actually don't know anyone who totally Dismisses that, but that's an get, when you get into the weeds of that argument, it's quite interesting.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. The third, I know you don't really like this term, and I don't know if I really do either. But edutainment, mixing education and entertainment. Yeah, it sounds like I have to come into class with like clown nose,
0: and do like tricks and stuff. We're suspenders, yeah. water gun. Uh,
1: number four is updating employees' talents and skills. And number five is networking as a part of the educational process. So uh, I have a couple of questions about some of these so that
0: if maybe we go, so I think, you know, the employment is a key result. Um, I think what they're arguing here is that, you know, people don't go to university for no reason. I mean, they go to university for a variety of reasons, but I think one of them, it would be hard to argue that a main reason isn't return on investment of some kind to get employment in the workforce. Now, whether they do an arts degree and they become a historian or they use that for something else is up for debate. But I think that seems like a fairly straightforward argument.
1: No, for sure. And, but I guess the, the tough part is especially, I mean, uh, we look at we're here in Alberta and I, I always say this to students. Especially we've been, I mean, even pre-pandemic, we've been in a bit of an economic downturn. And so if you do go into certain disciplines, let's say it's business or engineering, the expectation is that you're going to get a job. But they've been faced with situation where there might be people who have, I don't know, decades of experience that have been laid off. And now it's a choice for an employer where you can go and take somebody fresh out of school and have to train them. Or you could take somebody who's willing to take a pay cut and uh, has years of experience,
0: right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. So you're getting this kind of backlog um, because, you know, people who have the experience are willing to take maybe a job that pays less because they have nothing. So it's better than nothing. But then that pushes out. The people below and then it takes them longer to get established and uh, that's why the economy is falling apart.
1: Although it's interesting, Chris was telling me this uh, our um, audio uh, producer engineer here um, apparently in the oil and gas sector, so he works for an oil and gas company uh, and. it's getting really competitive and tough to find people, and so uh, and it's probably part of it is that a lot of people have been turned away from the industry, and uh, and now given the oil prices and the demand for it, uh, they cannot find people. So it's it's interesting.
0: Yeah, petroleum engineers are one of the highest paid professions in the world, and while yes, oil and gas is an up and down market. It's inter- it, you know, it's a really interesting point. It, w- it doesn't surprise me that that's a trend. I haven't heard that, but it doesn't surprise me because when oil was down, you know, our, we have a very energy focused province. Um, and I'm not taking a, for those listening who are like pro or anti-oil, I'm really not taking any stance. I'm purely looking at this from just a market. It's interesting how quickly people react to a change in the market, right? So, oh, you got laid off. The industry's dead. It's, I there's some connection to this with kind of the news cycle. Uh, you know, there'll be a change in the industry. It's either this is the next thing or this thing is over. And it's like there's like a million articles published about why you should you know tear up your petroleum engineering degree and go into something else. And it's kind of like, well, you know, things go in cycles, right? They go up and down and up and down and. Um, this is happening in a lot of markets where, you know, there was a downturn and then poof, people just left and then it was back again. And there was a huge shortage, right? Uh, part of that, you know, pandemic shutdown startup, which is unprecedented, but this is not the first time I've seen that. And it's kind of interesting, uh, that that's affecting the oil and gas market now.
1: Sure. And, uh, even one thing that I, I just recently, uh, I'm teaching a course um, in um, its introduction to product management and product leadership as part of the Edge Up program, which is to transition those who have worked in the oil and gas sector into the technology sector. And one of the things that I told the students is that, you know, you have these years of experience in the oil and gas sector. You know, I... I wouldn't discount uh, the oil and gas sector altogether. And there might be even opportunity for you to go and apply some of what you're uh, picking up. And especially with digital transformation taking place, I mean, everywhere. And this is where I think the key thing is technology. And hopefully people get this from our, um, you know, discussions as well. Technology is a tool just like any other tool. And it's just a matter of uh, figuring out the problem that you're trying to solve. And this is where, you know, we introduce you to a number of different tools, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, I am a big advocate of just practicing the one tool that works really well for your particular situation. Right? And Kind uh, of the idea
0: of mastery over, you know, really, getting, really finding a good solution to a problem rather than being a tool collector, so to speak
1: yeah yeah exactly yeah I mean, you could go and curate i mean that's why it was like interesting you who we have that uh, you know repository of tools that we shared at the beginning, but out of that, like who's going to go and learn four hundred different tools right like well, no, that's the, yeah, yeah nobody nobody should do that. It would be like if, so that's
0: a good point. it would be oh, if you have a problem to solve, consult this list and find the tool for you. Being a tool collector only works if you have a podcast where you tell people about tools,
1: yeah yeah, exactly.
0: or your job is to show people, um, that edutainment. So there's a line in here. Uh, so it says another way to increase engagement in the learning process is to add some entertainment components. Okay. Uh, after all who said adults don't like games, sounds like a setup generation Y and Z grew up on dandy games, Tetris and Tamagotchi. Hang on a second. Tetris and Tamagotchi I feel like these people have mistakes. Isn't like like Gen X, Tetris, like this is old. Like, I mean, like Tetris is from like the eighties and Tamagotchi is like way old. I know it's made a huge comeback recently. So if they're trying to talk about Gen Z, which would be the generation that came after myself, I feel like these are not
1: the right examples (laughs) to provide. Uh, but I, also, I guess uh, yeah, yeah, and I guess at the end of end of the day, the real point is that, uh, and you know, this has happened for a while now. Uh, you know, the gamification—if there is some way of going and you know engaging students—I mean, um, if there's a possibility, that's that's great. Yeah. But, well, uh, I think, yeah,
0: I don't mean to be too interrupting, but I mean, I guess when I think about it, like, I guess the idea of bringing some entertainment and engagement to the classroom, I would agree with. But yep. the it's the gamification that I have questions about. So, like, if you gamify things in a classroom, it's like, okay, class, we're going to learn this topic through a choose-your-own-adventure. So, but you're never going to get into the workforce, and your boss is going to be like, okay, guys, whoever does the report gets through the maze first, gets chocolate at the end. Like, that doesn't work like that. It's like, that's what the money is for, right? Like, this is a transaction. So, I find it it... I guess I like the I I thinking about like bringing personality to your class and actually think treating it a little bit more as a performance and to be interested in your own content and to come up with good assignments. If that was the definition, I would agree. But I feel like this is more gamification. I'm just curious what you think about that. Does that infantilize people?
1: Well, and uh, again, I, I think there there could be ways like, I mean, it's it's interesting because they're basically telling you to kind of embrace like the technological stuff. Like, let's say, um, I don't know, maybe it's like your smartphone and using text and other kind of formats or whatever. Right. And which, you know, maybe you do that. I mean, I, I personally, I'd rather avoid it as much as possible. Right. Uh, and uh, have them focus on other things because that's I don't think it's really going to help them learn. Um, uh, through the course right mm-hmm. so but anyways but that that was yeah i don't know if you want to go through the rest of these but like i i thought it was interesting even this networking as part of the educational process i like I, I, I i find it so interesting how students they do not connect with one another and i i always try to instill uh with them i'm like imagine 20 years from now, time flies. I mean, nobody knows where we're going to be. And, and 20 years from now, who knows? I mean, a classmate of yours could become like a VP in some company and you should probably stay in touch with them and you should connect with one another, but I find, uh, lately, and I don't know, maybe it's part of us now having uh, been online. Um, you know, people don't uh, connect uh, the same way.
0: Yeah. Th- then net- you raise a really good point about the networking um it's funny so i think i've told this story before when i was in doing my graduate work in library sciences um there was a like a one they had these every course like three credits which is typical but they had you could take these one credit courses and you know you could add them together to make a a three credit it's kind of like i guess micro credentials before credentials because they were stackable but i i just took this one-off course uh, by a colleague uh, who I still t- stay in touch with, Ken Haycock, who's a big name in the, the library world, and it was professional socialization, professional development, and networking, and the course is that we all went to this conference in Alberta, so a local library conference, and there was tasks like there was readings to do, um, there was. Uh, you had to go and do networking challenges. So, like, how many people did you meet and report back, and what did you learn about those people? And it was really interesting because it was uh, really designed to be like, did you? How did you introduce yourself? Make a good first impression, and did you explain what, you know, why you'd want to keep in touch with that person or what you can do for them rather than what you can extract from them? And I thought it was a very positive way uh, to do networking, and it's probably one of the most valuable courses I've ever taken. But it's interesting to me how few programs kind of build that in. I guess if you have a, a very active course, I think health and physical education, there's several majors at Mount Royal, we, athletic therapy, physical literacy, uh, ecotourism, and sport and recreation management. It's actually a really great degree a suite of degree majors. I think those are really engaging. So maybe the, the nature of those programs, because they're so hands-on, people stay in touch. They're almost like networking is almost built in but I'm always surprised to see how the little emphasis is put on programs where people build connections and then, okay, everybody go your separate ways. They don't really stay in touch, which is ironic because we have all these tools, like you could set up a discord server for that,
1: you know, for that cohort and they
0: could keep it forever. Right. I mean, there's no need to delete it.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, even it's, it's funny how many students uh, you'd be surprised, uh, Eric, that don't even have LinkedIn I mean <laughs> how did you keep in touch with people in the past like uh, you didn't have any of these kind of social networks and I mean it's um, even why one of the reasons why I bring this up like today I noticed a student it wasn't one of my students but a, a student that was involved in um, uh, the RBC fast pitch that we sponsored and um, uh, he wasn't even a finalist but today I noticed in LinkedIn that he's become a VP of a large real estate company and very cool uh, I mean it was Pretty impressive. Like it's uh, that's only in the last seven years. He's now gone from, you know, starting off, uh, and you know, just entering the workforce and already become VP, which is huge, right? And uh, and I, I bet you most students have probably not kept in touch, which uh, who knows? Like you never know where those opportunities might come up.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I like that you brought this up about networking because it, it'd be interesting to know if there's an apprehension towards digital networking among students now, which is now, you know, a generation or more than younger than I am or you are. Why is that? Why, why would that have changed is the question I have.
1: Well, and I don't know if it has changed. I, I think it was always there, right? Like it's here. I'll even give you another example from last semester. I had um, some guest speakers come in. And in fact, some of these guest speakers are fairly well known in the tech industry here, uh, the tech sector in Alberta. And they actually encouraged all of the students to add this individual to LinkedIn. And how many did it? One. <laughs> one really Can you imagine are you, are out of a full class me? one person oh, my added the person uh and then even after the class was over because we had a break i think only two students actually talked to this individual and uh it just it kind of just blows your mind that here you have an opportunity somebody who's worth you know net worth wise is actually encouraging you to connect and so on but uh I, and again i don't know what that apprehension is and uh, even funny enough after that class i actually asked people i'm like hey how many of you have connected with this individual and they're like nobody <laughs> so wow and, and all you can do is really just kind of encourage but um, i don't know i mean maybe we just have to get back to the basics and especially as we are returning back to campus i mean i, I think people uh One thing that I always say, especially with some of these like networking events, you'd be surprised just giving some free food like pizza and maybe some, you know, a beer or something. (laughs) I mean, I don't even know if it needs to be beer, even it could be coffee, like free coffee to get get the person through. Uh, That might be good enough just to kind of uh, create those serendipitous, um, uh, you know, um, encounters with one another and who knows what uh, people might come up with. Yeah, I have a friend of mine who was out of work.
0: He's in my field, and he went to a conference once. And you're supposed to put your name and like where you worked. And he didn't have a job at the time. He was kind of in between jobs, and just said his name and looking for work. And you know, he's just meeting. it's pretty ballsy in a way. I mean, it's kind of humiliating, but also, you know what? Like, this is true. I'm in between jobs right now. So what? And someone says, "Is that a joke or is that for real?" And he's like, "No, it's for real." Like, I left this position. I left the province. He's like, "Hey." You know, it's not a lot of hours, but I need someone now for this. corporate, corporate librarianship, which is a really interesting sector. Sure. was hired. I mean,
1: you'd be amazed how many positions are unposted. Exactly. Right. And that's, uh, that's where, like, I think a lot of people don't realize there's like this hidden job market. And what does it come down to? It comes down to whether you like the person, right? Like, can you see yourself working with that individual day in and day out? Yeah. So
0: absolutely. We have Um, a a few
1: other articles.
0: Um, We'll try to get through these fairly quickly because I know you have to go, though we could always save some. Um, There was an interesting study published, or I guess a study, an article published by uh, the Brookings Institute, and it was called The Promises and Perils of New Technologies to Improve Education and Employment Opportunities. It basically goes through... um, you know, how education relates to the labor market, uh, you know, the usefulness of like micro credentials as a, as a trend, digital badging, uh, boot camps, different kinds of uh, educational opportunities. So it talks a little bit about um, different ways to get credentials. So they they talk a little bit about badges. This has been, by the way, this is a trend that's come and gone in education forever. So I, it's hard for me to take some of these <laughs> seriously because they were really big and then they disappeared and then they're back. Um, But uh, badges, you know, shareable digital credentials that visualize learning and skill achievement. So like very small, maybe you did something for like a few hours or an afternoon, but you know, maybe we have the technology now to standardize those and advertise them because we have all these social media platforms. Obviously there's certifications that's very, very common and things like the, you know, IT sector, so it talks about the rise of certifications. They talk about nano degrees, which is a term I hadn't heard before. So uh, short-term credentials with like skill-specific uh, curricula—that sounds a lot more like uh, almost like employer training rather than a post-secondary job degree, you know, uh, certificate or something. And of course, they talk about micro credentials too, which are supposed to be these uh, these stackable. Uh, credentials. And we've talked about this a lot before. What's interesting is that they <laughs> kind of like edutainment, they they coin, or I don't know if it's been coined here, but they discuss this idea of education 3.0. If anyone's been following internet or tech news, like I don't really understand what internet 3.0 is supposed to be. It sounds like a total scam from what I, I I I couldn't even define it. Uh, But education 3.0 sounds like it's piggybacking off that. So immediately set me off, but they have some interesting uh, discussions about what that would look like. So let's say you're doing like hands-on learning, right? So they're like education. So what's education 1.0 hands-on learning? So it'd be like in-person classroom or on the job learning in the workplace, if it was conceptual or foundational learning, like maybe your first year foundational course, maybe you're taking psychology again in in person, classroom based, etc. Okay, so what does the 2.0 online version of that look like? So 1.0 is like analog, 2.0 is online. So what's okay? Conceptual learning, so that's your base university course. It's like okay, well, that would be maybe like an online course. So, it could be live, could be recorded. So, remote instruction or hybrid instruction, you know, or in person, uh, personal instruction with like a heavy web content. And then, hands on learning again, is this live recorded demonstrations, hybrid learning, some sort of hands on. So, you're basically taking what we've done in the real world and you've recreated it very similarly to the online world. Just very similar to what you talked about, Chris, uh, emergency remote instruction instead of online learning. You've always argued that it's real online learning developed for online is different, it has a different take. So that's kind of where they're going with this. It's interesting because then they have, okay, what does 3.0 look like? And they call it the 3.0 platform. So a conceptual or foundational course, they say would be dynamic learning and credentialing platforms, modularized courses with digital badging, artificial intelligence to suggest jobs, or learning progressions so it's almost kind of you're taking a course it's breaking it up into badges and certifications as you're taking it and then also real time here's what you could do with this skill now that you've learned it here's what you can do with the skill so it's kind of like uh, i guess the idea would be that you're baking in this idea that how you would use that skill in the real world in a profession or for yourself as you're doing it and they kind of go through this 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 for conceptual hands-on matchmaking and, and skill signaling. Uh, and so it, it just, it's an interesting kind of take on what in the future of education uh, might look like. And they, they talk about how there's this really growing need for high quality education. And that's kind of driving, I suppose, the need for these micro-credentials, nano-credentials, certifications. I mean, however you want to describe it, you're, the opportunity cost, I think what's common across everything is the opportunity cost is lower. You're not signing up for a six-month $1,000 course. You've broken it up into little pieces and it can be put together and you're kind of able to put it to use right away, I guess is the idea. Uh, they talk about the some of the downsides to this though, like the potential risks, which is that online is great breaking things up is great um there's all these companies this is a huge growing sector but there's like a lot of people in the world who don't have good internet access so this doesn't help them
1: i mean it's interesting I, i'm surprised they didn't throw in some nfts or whatever and maybe that's yeah, where's the blockchain bad- blockchain <laughs> badges maybe that's where the digital badging is coming in and they they forgot to list the blockchain but um I, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's um, at the end of it, like, yeah. Uh, and I mean, maybe that's another discussion. We can talk about Web 3.0 another time. <laughs> it's uh, But um, I, I found it one thing, like, I mean, our, our buddy, Scott Galloway, I don't know if you've uh, seen recently, not that he's I a haven't. buddy, uh, but he's actually taken his courses and they're now on a subscription basis. So you can pay $83 per month build annually and it's expensive get, and get access not just to his courses like all these people that he's assembled even if you remember um uh, gibson biddle uh, that uh, former um vp of product at netflix he actually has a course with him as well so now he's just taken all these different courses that you can go and pick and choose uh so that that's kind of interesting as well and uh, i'm sure you could probably get some sort of digital badging for like linkedin or what have you so what is what is the the question that's always come up,
0: and I think it's a valid one. I'm not opposed to third party education or private sector. I mean, universities can't do everything, and in some ways, they're already doing too much. So, what is the solution? What I haven't seen is an article that says, like, if you get a degree from Northwestern or Princeton, presumably, like we know it's like a real place. You ever see the show Better Call Saul? Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't, I shouldn't joke. And the joke is that, you know, you know, what is this degree is from like the university of American Samoa or something? It's like, like nobody knows. I don't even know if that's real. If it is, I'm sorry ahead of time, but it's just interesting that it's, that's, it's always questioned. There's like this credibility. So how, what, what do you think? I, I have no answer to this. What do you think is the, the way that, um, these digital credentials, particularly ones that don't come from the university sector, how are they gonna be rated? Is it just the skills? Like who's hiring people with what? Is it gonna be momentum based on Scott Galloway's reputation? I mean, uh, the Scott Galloway taught a really crap course. I can't imagine that it would be, you know what I mean? Like, cause anyone can pay for it. It's not like you have to give them transcripts. It's not like, it's not a lottery.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's not anybody can go and take the course, but I guess that in his case, really his value proposition is the fact is he's, uh, I mean, where he originally started was, you know, he's charging tens of thousands of dollars in tuition for his NYU course. And now you can basically get that course for much cheaper, right? And I mean, while you mentioned uh, Eric, like $83 a month, and this is probably US, I I would imagine. It is cheaper than NYU. Yeah, well, and it's, it's even maybe like, let's say if I'm teaching a continuing education course, which is like, I don't know, like, I don't even know what the cost is, maybe it's 625 bucks for one course that I teach. And so basically, this is the equivalent of maybe like two courses. And now you have access to their whole repository of courses for the whole year. But it's it's different, right? I mean, it's not the and, you know, I, I guess at the end of the day, they got a bunch of people that are very well recognized, um, reputable and probably even have high production value, right? I mean, uh, in terms of the recordings and so on, but I I think it comes back to like even that, uh, like that one article that uh, we were talking about uh, earlier, comes down to skills, right? I mean, does anybody really care where you're doing all this stuff? It comes down to actually being able to employ it in the workforce. And uh, I think some of what uh, you even brought up in this Brookings um, Brookings Institute, study like i mean i could see especially certain disciplines you have to go and maintain your professional development well right? it like if, is
0: like that you have to yeah. if you're an, if you're a mac software support fairly entry level you have to do it yeah you have to keep or it even to
1: let's say other like i mean i can speak from like the business side of things if you're going and doing let's say hr there's the chirp designation and yep. you'd have to go and maintain Uh, You know, you have to do professional development every year, same thing for the accounting designations, you have to go and keep yourself abreast of uh, the various topics and I think this is where maybe some of that dynamic digital badging and you know I don't know how they're going (laughs) to develop these uh, AI algorithms to suggest what you should be taking but uh, I don't think it's like rocket science, Uh, there are certain things that you need to keep on top of. Right. And so I, I think that's just, it, it's funny. I think we might've chatted about this before because people, some students I've seen them, they say, they think that once they're done school, they never have to read again or never have to learn. And in fact, uh, I no. mean, you probably should be reading more than ever afterwards, but, um, uh, it's, uh, it's just, you know, learning uh, as a human being, we're always learning right and uh, i i don't know if we need all these degrees or anything it it just comes down to whether we can apply it uh to some you know particular circumstance
0: yeah i guess i i guess i'm thinking is that these these online alternatives which i'm i'm a big fan of like i don't get me wrong like i have this course I've been playing guitar for 20 years and there's these skills that i'd like to know so i i bought a udemy course and it's really really good um but I don't, I've never advocated that that'll replace a music degree, right? Especially when we're, that's probably a bad example, but if it's a business degree and then you're taking, you know, product management badging on top of it. well, I mean, the degree still serves a purpose because there was, presumably you gained a network from that. If you took advantage of it, you got to know the professor. There's no possible way that Scott Galloway is marking all these assignments like an essay so you're never going to get the feedback so that the downside with mass enrollment online learning is that you can really only do unless you have artificial general intelligence that's as good as giving individualized feedback as a real person which I don't see anywhere on the horizon there's you, you really can only do like a, objective assessments like true or false you can't even do written short answer because you'd have to have a person marking that, that requires human intervention. So I'm just thinking like that's, I agree with a lot of his arguments, but it's not a replacement. So I guess I'm thinking of the transition, you go to high school, then you get some sort of maybe more personalized post-secondary or higher education. And then you do continue on adding to the skills as you need them through these other platforms. Is that kind of the trajectory of the future?
1: it's possibly.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure this out. Yeah. I don't actually know.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there was a
0: very depressing article that we had. It's from VentureBeat. VentureBeat's actually a really, really great um, news site. They do a, they cover a lot of really interesting things. Well, given their name, like ventures, like companies and tech company, like almost like the business side, but they had this one thing. I'm not a security expert. There's a report. Uh, Titled, 35% of educational institutions have an SQLI vulnerability, right? So um, for those who uh, don't know, so SQL is, according to Wikipedia, I will read from their definition, which I have in front of me, is a domain specific language uh, used in programming and designed for uh, managing data held in a relational database management system or for stream processing in relational data stream management, basically database database stuff. But they found that um, this Invicti security company found that 35% of educational institutions and 32% of the government organizations, you think that would be government would be worse, but it's actually education that takes the cake, were found to be vulnerable for SQL injection. That's what SQLI means. And this is for 2021, even though this uh, this came out more recently. Uh, so this is a type of web vulnerability that allow- I'm reading from the article here, this is a, a type of web vulnerability that allows malicious actors to modify or replace queries, so searches, in an application sends uh, to its database is especially threatening to these sectors because it has the potential to expose deeply personal information that attackers can use to assume identities. So uh, educational institutions are increasingly a, a target for hackers because to enroll in a university, you know, you're giving them your social security code or social insurance number, your birthday, phone number, like, payment information, uh, all of this stuff. So this I'm is vulnerability. not surprised, uh, I mean, vulnerability. It's,
1: uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's almost like the Y2K that we had before. And I mean, uh, back when I first learned how to code back in 99, you know, that's why SQL would be what you would use for the databases. So, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> Obviously these educational institutions, hopefully we, don't run into these issues, but I wouldn't be surprised if we even run into like ransomware problems because of this.
0: Well, we've already had that in our local institutions. Yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we so, um, there was only one other thing I think that we we're going to cover. I was going to skip to Cal Newport. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, there's another article we have, but maybe we'll save that for next time from the Financial Times, because that's uh, kind of warrants a broader discussion. But basically, um, so Cal Newport, our, our friend, that we've never met, dear colleague. He wrote the book, Deep Work. We've talked about it a number of times on this, on this podcast. Uh, calnewport.com is his website, and he has a blog that he's had for many years called the Study Hacks blog. And his, one of his more recent articles, he hasn't been blogging as much lately. This is from March 31st, which is still his most recent post. It said, smartphones versus science on distraction and the suppression of genius. So he's reporting on an article that was written um, in Nature about a PhD student at the University of Chicago who basically talked about how, you know, just turning off their phone led to, uh, you know, a dramatic increase in productivity and helped them, you know, complete the science for their PhD, not a surprise. Um, So, you know, skipping past this, he talks about distraction and all the problems he was facing during his program. And uh, Cal says, didn't take much self-reflection for, uh, Adam Weiss to identify the problem, his phone. He recognized that he increasingly colonized his quiet time, quote unquote, with digital distractions. As a result, his work felt chaotic and disorganized. Throwing more hours at the problem didn't help. I was working more than ever, but getting less done. And so what he did is he turned off his phone uh, or you know, used it without internet connection. So it had the basics. Uh, for music, he used an offline iPod and uh, all of these things to kind of, again, get at what Cal is, his bread and butter is, which is, you know, distractions are bad and people are trying to multitask and that's not really possible. So uh, I guess nothing revelatory here other than another example of how, you know, turning off your digital devices is probably an advantage, especially if you're a graduate student
1: absolutely i've I've even found like right now, as uh, we mentioned at the beginning, like i'm uh, just grading, uh, even just what I've done is uh, with my browsers is I just close out everything except for just the papers and the assignments, and that's it. and uh, it's it's helped uh, immensely because otherwise, like yeah, I mean I have I'll, I'll go and post a a grade all of a sudden, a student emails me about it and asks questions or whatever, and the, you know you can never get your task done and you just Mm -hmm. keep getting interruptions. Otherwise,
0: I have only one other thing to say about this, which is a kind of a tag on. So I I named this app of the month, our first uh, rendition of this segment. I don't know if we're going to keep this segment, but again, this is why I said in the beginning, bookending our podcast with tools, I think it's maybe a good idea. So I brought this up before, but given the nature of Cal's post, Um, one of the things that's distracting are writing applications, students are asked to do a lot of writing. Um, and I think I've seen students avoid writing by, by perfecting the formatting, get my margins just right, get all, all my titles, the right size, make sure that everything is bolded, like set up almost like a template and then like not do the writing and and leave it to the last minute. So I recommend not using tools that allow you to get too deep into the uh, formatting you can always format things later it's the content that matters so my recommendation for distraction free writing uh, the tool i've used many of these tools i test them all the time but the best one still i think is i a writer so i a writer it's available uh, on mac and windows i don't know if it's available on linux um, but it's a markdown text based writer, you can make it a really big font. Um, it has some really cool features like a focus mode where you can, it'll it'll kind of gray out the whole document, except either the paragraph or the sentence that you're working on. Um, so I, I do all my blog posts in this and I, you know, it's just, I find it extremely satisfying just to kind of use this as my primary uh, blogging tool rather than Microsoft Word or Google Docs or something like that. All the cruft, all the formatting is out of the way. I can always cut and paste it into uh, a- another application to format it for you know citation purposes and stuff after the fact.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. It's, it's funny because back in the day, I came across um, the company who actually de- created this app. It's called Information Architects. And they used to be a web design company. And then they started uh, going and you know, developing themes. I think they had a theme for uh, WordPress and then they developed this product. And so I I believe this is kind of like their bread and butter, but yeah, it's pretty cool how just a a simple thing that works that maybe they had a need for, and now it's become a very popular tool. Yeah, it is is paid, I
0: will say. Yeah. Um, And I, you know, I do try to offer free tools. I did do that in the beginning. So I think I'm allowed a pass here. But if I may stand on my soapbox for a second, I do think if someone makes a really good product, especially one that you own perpetually, it's worth paying for. Um, IA Writer did make an older version and they you can still, I can still access it and download it and it still works, but they made a new one and they, you know, you have to pay it. I had, I had paid again for it. So it is expensive. It's um, you know, it's it's 30 bucks to buy. It's a little bit cheaper on Android because you can pay per year, but it's basically $30. There's a 14-day trial um, on Mac and Windows, and there's no trial on the iPad or iPhone store. That may be a limitation of the store because it is an Android. That must be an app store thing. So it seems expensive, but you know, $30 for a really good writing app, I think, is worth it. I think that's cheaper than Scrivener. I think, I think Scrivener is quite a bit more money. Um, And so anyways, I think it's well worth uh, paying for. It has a great interface. You can sync it with cloud storage. You can also, if you blog, you can publish right to WordPress from it. Uh, it Does incorporate into some things, which is pretty pretty cool. So I highly recommend it. I think it's worth the money. It's a very small amount of money to pay in the grand scheme of things for a very well-maintained tool. And it has all sorts of things you can do that are not distracting, but also useful, like highlight conjunctions um You know, highlight cliches that you use in your sentences and stuff like that, and it, so it is helpful for kind of breaking down the grammar without introducing too much formatting. Awesome.
1: That's all I got, or we got, I should say. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, it's always a pleasure. Well, if you likewise, if you want to get a hold of me uh, again, it's Chris Ons. um You can find me. My Twitter handle is uh, at uh, Chris with a K, K R I S H A N S. And my website is the same. It's uh, chrishans.ca.
0: And I'm Eric Christensen. Uh, you can reach me at on Twitter, though I'm not on there very much anymore. And I've posted that, but at EG uh, Christensen. Um, I also have a couple of sites. I have ericchristensen.net. So E R I K. And then Christensen is C H R I S T I A N S E N. Eric Christensen.net. Uh, I've also resurrected well, continued blogging on my blog, TechBytes. So, tech-bytes.net. So, I've written about the Steam Deck. I've written about um, Apple Silicon advancements. So, I try to post news articles every week or every couple of weeks, do a big article at least once a month, that kind of thing. So, I have resurrected that and I have the momentum going. So, check out my tech articles. Awesome. Awesome. Well, take care, Chris. Thank you, too. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTechExamined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined And we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.
1: And I'm Chris Hong, the audio producer for EdTech Examined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A.